It's Inappropriate Characters, Episode 3. Ooh. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is the RPG Pundit, the final boss in Internet Shitlords. And uh, I'm here with our regular co-hosts, Venger Satanis and Grim Jim DeBurrows. We're here to <laughs> chat up about controversial and less controversial subjects. And this is technically the second formal episode, but we're doing it as a live chat anyways, I guess, because of technical uh, issues of time and, and organization for Grim, I think, who is our video guy. Yeah, so, uh, I've, got, I've got a busy week coming up, so I won't have time to tinker with things. So, But we, we, didn't, we didn't tell anyone we were going live, so we're not expecting to have a lot of people, <laughs> I guess. Uh, no, but it will be recorded and, and up. And we're, we're doing pretty well on the stats. We've got nearly 200 subs already and plenty of views and watch times. So we're, we're doing pretty well. That's good. Um, I am going to call you on one thing, though, Pundit. I've let, I've yeah. let it slide for the previous, previous episodes, but my last name is Desborough. Oh, Desborough. <laughs> Desborough, yes. So there's no... No S at the end. No. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. Everyone gets it wrong. I don't know why, but they do. Is that because it's French? It's either French in origin or Celtic in origin. Um, and it derives from earlier names, Disborough and Disbrow. And uh, uh, Major General uh, Jonathan Disbrow was one of the Major Generals under Cromwell. So, interesting history. Hmm. Very good. Well, speaking of stats, my latest YouTube video shot up through the roof, and uh, that was because of something that happened on social media, which was a little hashtag I made up uh, about a month ago, more than a month ago. It was called uh, D&D Gate. I was arguing that we need a D&D Gate, and uh, as it turned out, I ended up you know, catching some attention there on account of uh, somebody proving that we needed a D&D gate because uh, we had, uh, you know, this uh, immigration debate that's going on in the United States. And uh, I had made a post. See, I am an immigrant, right? My parents were immigrants to my country of birth. My grandparents were refugees. So, you know, I have an understanding of immigration that's in my bones and in my personal experience. And uh, because of that, and I know what a refugee really is, because my, my grandparents were refugees from World War II. Um, so on account of all of those things, I support uh, the, the notion of maintaining a legal system of, of, of immigration and standards for refugees and not just having this, you know, some kind of open border madness, right? And uh, we had a major member of the D&D design team um, post a D&D themed, even hashtag, if I remember correctly, as D&D post, where he suggested that if you oppose, um, if you don't, sorry, if you don't oppose the, you know, legal immigration system, in the United States, if you don't op oppose immigration enforcement 
and by default the you know current presidential administration then you are evil and it was implied that you had no place in the dnd community as they call it right so i wrote a response to that post and uh, that generated some controversy and people picked up on this dnd gate tag because my response was this is why we needed dnd gate the politicization of the hobby right and we had a ton of people posting a ton of stuff that was meant to you know try to stop me but as usual most of the things that they posted instead of actually addressing the debate addressing the things i was bringing up were just blatant lies now i'm not going to go into more detail about the specifics of the issue because in my latest if you go to my channel the rpg funded channel my latest video is all about that so i don't, don't want to just repeat myself if you're interested in understanding what happened go to my channel look at that video but today i, I wanted to share something i had saved just for you know com comparing war stories with the two of you here uh, probably one of the funniest incidents one of the funniest examples of these these crazy um ideologically driven censors and the mentality that they have it, it, out of all the stories that happened in the last three days with this uh dnd gate tag phenomenon this was to me the funniest and it's it's the reason why i put arrows of indra again as my um book image for the night so i had this guy who was commenting on how you know the rpg pundit is anti-lgbt and dangerous to uh you know to to transgender gamers or gay gamers or anything the guy identified as a uh, i believe a, a gender fluid gay furry okay and he had <laughs> he had a serious problem about how horribly anti-lgbt i am right and i actually responded to his post and i told him i don't know who told you that but i'm not anti-lgbt i've been pro-lgbt all my adult life i was in favor of gay marriage you know 20 years before either Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton were. Um, I've, I've always been in favor of people being able to do whatever they want with their own sexuality and their own bodies. And I mentioned that I happen to have also been the first guy ever to um, make a, uh, an RPG rule book, which is Eras of Indra, with a transgender heroic character on the cover. And uh, the person's response, you know, at first, before I got to that point, they were like, oh, you know, you're just saying that, but you're not, you're actually a bigot and, you know, you're harmful to, to transgender people and to LGBT people. And then I mentioned Arrows of Indra and they're like, oh, and they, I, I, it was kind of like they lost the plot for a second I, I, and they didn't post for a while. And then the next thing they come up with is they're posting, well, hang on, what about um, mutants and masterminds? There's a transgender character on that. Were they ever on the cover? And I'm like, I, I don't know. And uh, then later they say, oh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't. And then a little while later, they, they come up with some other book. Oh, maybe this one, right? This guy was looking, desperately looking for some kind of evidence that there was some other main RPG rule book that featured a transgender character on the cover previous to Arrows of Indra. So we're looking for books older than five years old that had a transgender here on the cover. And eventually this person settled they, they they said i've got it i i'm proving that you're wrong and and they have this game eclipse phase eclipse phase is a transhumanist rpg right and it it's the cover of the edition of eclipse of eclipse phase 
from before Arrows of Indra was of a spaceship with this tentacle monster attacking some kind of transhuman monkey creature, right? And they were like, well, you see, transhumanism is is like transgenderism because you you know you go beyond gender. So technically, that monkey on that cover was the first transgender character, and not your game. So there, bigot, right? Like this person. Wow. The 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 part that blows my mind about it, the part that's so funny about it, is that to them, if they could just somehow prove that I was the second person to put a transgender character on the cover of an RPG, then that would mean I'm still Hitler, right? Like if I did the first, I won. But if the second one, if, I, if my book was only second, then that means that they're still right and I'm still a Nazi, right? Because second just isn't good enough. I just couldn't believe it. That's a, that's a reach worthy of Mr. Fantastic, that is. Yeah. Is that guy aware of... Roseanne Barr and her tweeting, recent tweeting history, where she compared someone to like Planet of the Apes. Um, I would think if you had said that, same thing that that guy said, yeah, you would be Hitler and they would have crucified you. Yeah, if I'd said that, a, you know, that monkey guy was, you know, a transgender guy, like that's just nuts, right? It's just, you're right. Roseanne Barr lost her job for that. Yeah, it's not like there aren't things that people could have a go at you about, you know, differences that you have with people, but they seem to keep making shit up. I know, like you'd think there's there's definitely enough stuff about things I've said that people could genuinely take offense to things I've genuinely said, but somehow that's just never enough for them. They have to invent lies whole hog because they're afraid that you know even you know, I say a lot of pretty crazy things, right? Like you'd think that that would be enough for them to be able to make a decent argument about my own, you know, meanness or something like that. But but that's not good enough because it's not just enough to say, well, I'm an asshole, right? Well, yeah, I am an asshole a lot of the time. But what they need is to be able to prove that I'm evil incarnate so that they can demand that I be removed from the hobby forever, right? That So, so they'd rather just lie than than do anything else because they certainly can't argue the facts with me because on the facts I always win. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, your whole kind of intention behind this was to push back a bit against the politicization, but also to fight against the kind of politicized gatekeeping that they're doing. Right? Is that is that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're they're talking. They call us gatekeepers. My position has always been I want everybody to play the game. It's an open door policy. They're the ones that are saying, oh, well, if you don't follow our specific 2018 set of Seattle values, then you don't belong in this hobby. They're the ones trying to push people out of the hobby with political litmus tests. And the funniest thing, like my whole, the whole point of the D&D gate tag is to say um, what we want is an, a, a game where there isn't this kind of political litmus test going on and where people are just focused on playing, not in some kind of an identity politics teaching moment, uh, you know, some kind of propagandism in our books. Um, it's It should be about the gaming, gaming for everyone, for all colors, all races, all, you know, creeds and sexualities, but it should be about the gaming, which is the other irony is that there were, there were these people that came up with, um, they tried to kind of hijack the tag by making posts about gates in dungeons, right? Like interesting D&D &D gates, if you get the, the, the book, right? And they've done hundreds of 
yeah. on Twitter. And they think this pisses me off. But finally, I responded to one of them and said, well, I hope he's happy now. I said, yeah, I am happy. You did a whole, you, you guys did hundreds of posts about something D&D related instead of talking about politics. That's exactly my goal. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say, actually. Uh, one of two things, actually. So I, could, I still have the one. But I was going to say, I was on Twitter and I only follow like, Maybe fifty people. I don't know, but you're one of them, and <laughs> and Grim too, I think. Um, but there was a tag D and D Gate, and I was like, "Oh, this should be juicy." And it was like, "Oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a gate to a dungeon and it like had a mouth or something that you crawl in?" And I'm like, "Okay, so they're literally talking about dungeon and dragon like gates, or I don't know." And so I was confused, but now that, okay. So they tried to like, I don't know, one up you or like one eighty you really um, to like diminish your D and D gate tag or or something. Yeah, they wanted they wanted to bury the tag. Yeah, and and the funny thing is that that you know that this tag was not a you know a particularly big deal until they began getting outraged at me right so like first they they were laughing at me right with this they they were trying to post these you know dnd gates as a way to make me disappear under it right then they were getting mad at me when i was answering them right and then they were fighting me and then that drew in a whole bunch of people that were saying hey hang on the pundit is right and now we're starting to win right like the, <laughs> the, the, the first three days it was me and two other people arguing against all of these people calling all of us bigots. And there was another classic moment, which was when there was a group of three white males. I'm not sure if they were all straight or whatever, but they were all, there were three white males that were arguing on the side of the, you know, uh, community crowd, the SJWs we'll call them. And they were arguing against me, a Latino, um, a woman, two trans women, and a disabled gay Jew, right? This was my crew. These were the people that were arguing in favor of D&D gate. And they were attacking us and calling us agents of white supremacy or something like that, you know? It's just so absurd. Yeah. Uh, but my other thing was, so I think a lot of this starts at the top with Mike Merles, right? I mean, since forever, he's had like, isn't his Twitter picture avatar or something on his page or something is like D&D, but the rainbow, like the LGBT. Yeah, it's the, the, it's the rainbow ampersand, the yeah. They've, yeah. they've made that for um, a fundraiser. Yeah, but I think he's, you know, he's that inclined and he's been like that for years and he's kind of like the man in charge of D&D, right? Well, I, <laughs> I could tell you stories about Mike Merles because he's he followed my he was one of the first people to follow my blog. He followed my blog for years. We chatted often. There was a moment before he got hired by Wizards. This was well before fifth edition, right? This this was um, just before fourth edition came along, um, where he was freelancing basically, and he was considering moving to Uruguay. And uh, we, so we've had long chats. And then, of course, we chatted like crazy. We had a whole bunch of hundreds of emails exchanged during the 5e project, right? 
And Mike Merles is, I mean, I'm sure that he is, um, you know, a, a West Coast liberal, but he's not an ideological fanatic by heart um, because we've had lots of conversations and I am sure he, I can assure you he's not, right? <clears throat> but he's doing what he thinks he needs to do right now to um, keep his job in a very politicized atmosphere. I think there are other people in Wizards of the Coast that are definitely political activists, right? Jeremy Crawford being one of them. But, um, you know, Mike Merles is, is he's, he, he wants to keep working there, I think. And if he doesn't toe the line, uh, and you always see this, that he, he'll post stuff, he'll post very generic, very, you know, he's being tactical about it. And that's, that's okay. I mean, like, it's all right if he, you know, he wants to say, okay, D&D is for everyone. Yeah, D&D is for everyone. Sure, post that, right? You, you believe, if you, if you support LGBT youth and you have an LGBT ampersand of the D&D ampersand, well, you know, that, that's, that's okay too. We, I'm not going to object to stuff like that. I'm going to object to uh, suggesting that anyone who opposes illegal immigration is lawful evil and should be expelled from the hobby. You know, that's the sort of fanaticism that is the problem. Yeah, the the argument I've managed to get some traction with is the is reminding people that this is supposed to be escapism, you know? I weight the left than you. We probably disagree if we got into the argument on borders or whatever. But that's not or really the but that's not really the point, is it? The point is this is a, this is a game. Not every game has to be political. People play games in order to escape from this nonsense. And the idea that you should do some kind of political purity test or whatever for everyone you sit down to play with is just, is just nonsense. That That is gatekeeping. I mean, w when I sit down at the table, it shouldn't matter if one player's a black supremacist, another player's a white supremacist, another one's a political lesbian. Who cares? You know, what What characters are they playing? What's the story we're weaving together? Those, those other things shouldn't matter unless they bring their bullshit to the, to the table and start arguing with each other or whatever. But they seem to be trying to present their gatekeeping as being against other people's gatekeeping. It just, it's, it's hypocritical. It makes no sense. Absolutely. And, you know, I agree with you. My gaming group is incredibly diverse. You know, we're mostly, uh, most of most people in my gaming group are Latinos, obviously, but you know, thirty percent of them are women. We have LGBT people. We have some people who are um, more to the right than me. We have a lot of people who are moderate center left, and a couple of people who are actually literal South American communists, right? But we don't care because at the table, we don't. That's not what we discuss. You know, we go there, we we play dungeon crawl classics or lion and dragon or you know uh, lords of olympus or whatever and we have a good time and that's what it should be about that's where what brings us together is the hobby we don't need a political code for a hobby that you do for a community which is why they want to change terms on us yeah i mean for all the people made fun of it gamergate had a very definite central thrust of what it was after which was more more ethical games journalism and less censorship those are the main things this kind of political entryism and and so on was a very secondary thing what what would a win for dnd gate look look like for you what's what do you think's the the goal for it well to me the goal would be a situation where 
the leading parts of the industry, which is nowadays mainly Wizards of the Coast, I mean, Paizo to a certain extent, but they're on the way down, um, would focus on producing great game content, um, on being open and accepting to everyone, you know, having diversity um, encouraged, but would not um, create an environment where you are demanded to agree with political talking points of the extreme North American left, you know, specifically the kind of Seattle, Portland left, where most of these people are based. Sorry, just describing any mainstream American politics as left wing just makes me laugh because the, the Overton window is so far to the right in the States. It's, it's absurd, <laughs> but I, I know what you mean. Well, yeah, I get it. There is a difference between the Euro left and the American left. But these days, that difference is diminishing in my experience because, you know, the, the American left has now gotten to the point. I mean, just the other day, the, L, the, A, the American Civil Liberties Union, who for my entire life I've supported because they were dedicated to unabashed freedom of speech, have now announced that they're um, only going to support freedom of speech cases where they are balanced with notions of equality and diversity, right? Which is to say they don't actually believe in freedom of speech anymore. They only believe in freedom of speech for people who are following the right political line. And this is a sign, if you want to talk about a moving Overton window, that's what's happening today in American politics. Yeah, see, to me that... Sorry, go ahead, Venger. Okay, so because I live in America, so I probably have, <laughs> you know, not I, I follow politics a little bit. Probably not as much as maybe either of you, but the American thing I know about. Um, and the activism and the rhetoric, yeah, sometimes that goes as far left as you can go. But politically, in respect to elected officials, um, you're almost always going to have uh, more of a, a moderate Democrat or a moderate liberal. Because, you know, and you have your your one or two out of, you know, 200, 300. But um, it's just, yeah, America just in itself is moderate, but a little bit to the right, I think, of most other countries, um, like first world countries. And that, that, uh, that, that's just... America is right. What's that? That that the center in America is more to the right. That's that's the big difference between America and Europe. Right. It's not about the you see all the same extremes. It's that the American center, the average American, is more conservative than the average European, and that that changes the political balance, right? And, and that's a, why you have a whole bunch of blue states red in the last election. You know, because you got one extreme and you got the other extreme, and with American politics and voters being what they are, America being what it is, the extremes just automatically get knocked out. And so what you get instead is, you know, left and right. So the extremes are over here. Now you get more centrist moderates. And pretty much everybody is within this window right here. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's further to the right than you would expect or a lot of other places just because i mean you got to work within the system and american politics i mean it's it's not about revolution 
and it's not about socialism or communism or like changing the constitution because you can't do that um and so everything is a little bit more conservative and traditional and even liberal, liberal elements you know have to abide by you know a certain amount of the way things are yeah yeah that's true but maybe we should get back to the yeah we have gotten off topic as one commenter <laughs> well it's related let's, let's get out of politics in general we can still talk about politics and gaming but i think uh, we could t change to our next topic and i think that's uh that's your turn venture what are you gonna bring yes. up for us tonight the world building um i wanted to talk about this just because um i'm kind of embarking my own world building right now uh, i'm going to uh, start a DD campaign pretty soon uh, I thought about running one of my own games, but which I frequently do, uh, like Crimson Dragon Slayer or Alpha Blue or something like that. But I want to, if not stream the sessions, I want to like record and document more of it in hopes of either building an audience or attracting more viewers and being able to influence you know um play and play styles because um hopefully a lot of people will watch just like they do other streams and other uh channels and games and they learn they learn like how people do it and i want to do like an old school D, &D uh somewhere between old school you know basic and fifth edition so anyway i'm doing that because that's more popular and I want to, you know, build this thing. So I needed a campaign world and I didn't want to use one of the ones that's already out there. I wanted to create something different, um, something I'm familiar with, but something new. And um, I already created a video and, and blogged about it a little bit. It's a world called Chalt. And uh, it's a mix of a lot of different things. And if you're going into a world building session or thinking about world building, uh, you got to look at your influences and you got to reference, at least this is what I do. Um, you take little bits and pieces of different media that you like and you combine them in whatever logical way you can. And then eventually, you know, you list everything that the world is and what it isn't and that's that's what you get um so uh i you know i was using movies all the way from zardoz <laughs> and um what else i also use like D D and gaming things that that influenced me like uh, gamma world and mutant crawl classics um dark sun so this is gonna be like a post-apocalyptic thing um but yeah any kind of movies or tv shows i mean you gotta have uh, some sort of visual reference you can use literature too if you read a lot which i don't um, <laughs> i just don't have the time or the patience right now for reading i wish i wish i did um i used to read quite a bit but not not so much anymore 
when one day I will read again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, movies and TV shows. Um, you just marry like one little bit and another thing. I was uh, reading this uh, Chinese zodiac uh, just for my kids, and it had this line about the ancient people, I suppose, in China, um, regarding dragons as you know these mythical like godlike creatures that the dragons will and ambition or determination were so strong that people believed um like just everything like fates and just the way the world turned just kind of revolved around um the will of these dragons and it kind of sparked something in my mind i was like oh you know instead of having gods uh why don't i just have dragons but these larger than life like deity dragons that were so powerful and so ever present in the world that you know one flying overhead uh could you know create an earthquake or cause an army to you know uh march on their neighbors or uh, you know uh festivals and religious cults and you know would build up around the dragons and you know be this whole thing um so but um why don't you guys talk about <laughs> world building that you've done in the past or um what you think would go into your own world building session um uh, shall i go yes yeah. go ahead okay um the, the main thing I aim for when I'm creating a, a game world or any game is um, what I call plausibility. It's kind of a fluid idea because some games are more cinematic and what's plausible in that context is one thing. Some of them are more, you're trying to create a more realistic world, so what's plausible in that instance can, can be different. But that's the kind of sweet spot that I aim for that allows you to get away with some nonsense but keeps everything believable enough in context to play like you i draw on stuff from all over i tend to go one way or the other <laughs> i either go for a really kind of intensely detailed world or leave it pretty vague with just kind of ideas um one of the first games i ever released uh cloak of steel has this really intensely detailed world and if you contrast that with machinations of the space princess Everything's just kind of implied in that. There's nothing really that specific. We know that there was an empire, if if you even decide to use the background, and that it's fallen within the last few decades, and everything's gone into chaos. And then there's you know stuff that's implied throughout the adventure seeds at the bottom of the page. So, what I found weirdly useful is when you do draw on lots of different influences from literature and books and games and stuff once you start recombining it it's not really recognizable anymore um so that is yeah remixing stuff is is effective it saves you work but it still comes out quite novel and also that some really bad <laughs> books and some really bad films uh, can make for really good adventures and game worlds there's just something uh, about role-playing 
kind of alchemically turns terrible B-movies into pretty good play sessions. I think that's because your players are probably better than the people who were acting and directing or writing, whatever it is. One of my most... <laughs> yeah, imaginations. Yeah. Uh, one of my... One of the best horror games I ever run was based on mashing together two of Sean Hudson's novels that weren't particularly good and a, and a terrible film that we'd watched. Um, and that, that came out really well, weirdly. So, you know, take your inspiration wherever you can find it. Um, it's hard to define what I mean by plausible, but maybe I'll try and go into that in one of my own videos at, at, at some point, try and pin it down. So is it my turn? Yeah, you're up. All right. Well, I'm going to, I wasn't expecting to go into any kind of a rant here, but maybe I will go into a little bit of a rant. In my experience, I think that there's a certain poverty of ideas in a lot of world building. If you look at one of the reasons why the early settings are so um, ongoingly popular it's not just because they were first. It's also because the people who were inspired by them were at least drawing from a, a fairly wide range of science fiction and fantasy literature and some other influences um, that were very uh, diversified. And then over time, what's happened though with pop culture, with movies, with, with uh, novels, fantasy novels and comic books and all of these things, is that they've all become increasingly self-referential. Stuff has been taken out of this tradition and increasingly new stuff that gets created is referencing just the older stuff that was there to the point that now there's a whole bunch of you know, games and, and shows and movies and books that are essentially using early D&D as its core reference. But at every time, it's like if you do a photocopy, right? Every photocopy you do is going to be a little bit more degraded than the last one. Um, and fundamentally, even the early ones don't usually, with a few exceptions, have a really strong basis in something other than kind of American and occasionally British pop culture fantasy. In my experience, that's not usually how I create worlds. Now, I'm, it helps that I'm a historian, but in my experience, if you look at history, and mythology and uh, the anthropology of world cultures and things like that, there's a much richer set of resources, right? And classical myths and classical stories that are just so much more varied than the stuff you get from pop literature. That, you know, for, for a start, history, if you really look at it, it tends to be way more interesting, way more unexpected, way crazier than most literature, with the exception of maybe some of the great literature that, that produces really novel stuff. But a lot of, you know, literature tends to be repetitive. And in history, you see a whole other way of looking at it. And part of that is also that when you're creating a world, part of the point of the world is that it should be a virtual reality because we're not making a novel when we, when we run a campaign. We're acting in a virtual world. The characters are people in this virtual reality. So if the world is based on... Um, just literary sources, the world will feel, at least to a certain extent, like it's a made-up world, like it's a, it's a world that is a setting for a story to be told, rather than a world that feels real. In, in my experience, if you base yourself on 
kind of historical sources and even you know the the classical mythological sources those fundamental symbols of of human experience then uh, that gives you a whole set of other tools to work with that helps your world get that virtual reality sort of sense to it like you were talking about dragons right and this is kind of a an, an area that i've that i've looked into right in china uh, you're right about dragons that they were seen as these especially in the early period of, of chinese history um these powerful forces that were that were both living creatures and spiritual forces and you had dragons that were representative of the um masculine force of the yang and dragons that were representative of the feminine force of the yin and uh, that had different qualities to them the ancient people believed that dragons lived under the earth uh, but then traveled up into the sky and this happened at certain times that corresponded with the seasons and when a dragon would would first go up into the sky it would make rain which was very important for ancient peoples right so if the rain wasn't coming it was because the dragon was still in its cave it wasn't coming out of the underworld and then you needed a shaman to try to draw out that dragon and they would do this ritual where they would use ritual implements the most important of which was jade which was really important to chinese culture right they would have these jade wands that they would try to use with a combination of you know magic spells to call out the dragon to make it rain and this this ancient shaman the 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 wu's if they didn't succeed the first time they tried to call out the dragon and to make it rain then they would have to try again and then you would need blood so there would be a human sacrifice and the sacrificial victim was supposed to be a cripple so they would sacrifice a cripple to try to call up the dragon to make it rain because the blood would draw out the dragon from the earth but if they didn't succeed the second time then the third time the the shaman himself would be the sacrifice which meant that you had to be really good at your job if you were a shaman right because you had three tries well two tries really and then on the third one you're out right you're the guy that they're going to sacrifice yeah dragons are all sorry three strikes you're out that's right yeah and uh the dragons were were connected to human behavior as well because when dragons would fight in the skies that would cause thunderstorms right and then the thunderstorm itself the thunder was seen as connected in in human consciousness to conflict so when there was a thunderstorm there would be conflicts and there's a parallel you know an, an imagery in nature of the thunderstorm as a metaphor for warfare that that when humans fight it's like a human thunderstorm and it's all tied to their theories of the elements and magic so you don't get stuff like that by reading you know uh cheap mass produced fantasy literature right this is stuff that comes out of kind of the core of early human experience so i i would tell anyone who's who's doing world building that the very first thing you you would really want to do is think about the kind of world you want and then look at the closest parallels in human history right and when you're trying to design a culture look at the 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 interesting weird things about the culture and that used to be the sort of thing that you could only do maybe if you had a degree but nowadays the internet makes that so much easier you just start searching around you start maybe with wikipedia but then there's other sites that you'll be able to find and one discovery will lead you to another that will let you add things that you would never ever have thought up yourself um, but that are actually 
rooted with this sense of realism that comes out of real history and real you know myth and real belief. The other thing I'd say for world building is that people are often uh, when they're making the world, you're also trying to make a world for your campaign, right? So you want to think about what the future of that world should be. People will tend to do, I've seen a lot of books, setting books, that have huge chapters on the past of the campaign, right? Sometimes people make this, you know, the, the game world, and they start their, their chapter on the history of the world with like, you know, 10,000 years ago, and they tell you all this lore about stuff that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And then they're kind of like, well, and now it's the modern day and good luck. Right. So when I designed Dark Albion, for example, I did some history, but my chapter on future events is way longer and it's done in this kind of year by year format. I was a bit inspired by that uh, for that, rather, by the Great Pendragon campaign, which I think is one of the greatest campaign books ever made Right for, for Pendragon, um, where they, you know, Greg Stafford did the same thing. He, he did like a year by year set of events and plot lines and things that you can tap into. So think about, don't think so much about the, the past history, do what's necessary to, to really be relevant to the present, but then figure out what the future of your campaign will be, like where do things go? And that's another place where history can really be helpful because if you're trying to just think it up in your own head or you're you know, looking at it as if it was a story, a novel, there's going to be this kind of consistency and, uh, and things that you would expect that, that don't really match up to how history works in the real world in real world history you've got stuff like these guys that are hugely important and are doing stuff and then they you know they they suddenly die of a stroke or something like that right and then that changes and so the the x factor tends to get lost when you're thinking of it as if you have to craft this really consistent story instead you know human history is a lot messier than that and that's something to make use of you have to be careful though that your future history is is broad strokes and not you know a series of dragonlance novels where <laughs> no you know absolutely. this happens and then this happens and then year three of the campaign this happens where you know you gotta take into account obviously uh, the characters and you know what they're gonna do and you know yeah you have, to have a series of events that are beyond the scope of the player characters, and then a series of events that depend on what the player characters do. And a good DM will have to modify that chronology based on things that the players are doing. If what the players are doing is so, you know, is significant enough to change that course of things. Yeah, I'm obsessed with this idea of finding a way to reflect the effect of what the player characters have done in the world. And the only game that's really done that that I can that I can reference is um, Underground. Um, you know, the, the kind of street level superhero over the top thing from the from the nineties, but that was very much based on you would set out to improve your neighbourhood and, and make it better, and it had a, a, a string of digits, almost like a Traveller Universal World Guide, that would um, you know tell you. You know, average average wage levels, sort of quality of life, policing, crime level, and so on. And when you did an adventure, it could alter one of these statistics, and that would then be reflected in how the area would would be to live in. But when you bumped up one thing, something else would come up as well, but something else would get worse. So it was constantly trying to 
to, to balance it. And that's, that's interesting. Another idea I've had is forming like a, a web between communities on a map. I think you really need to computerize it to make it work. And I'll need to get someone's help to do that. But so, you know, if you rescue this village from bandits or orcs or whatever, then their food production might go up and that increases the wealth in the surrounding area, which you know makes a guild more powerful, that sort of thing. So knock on effects between things helps bring a world alive and that reflects the character's actions. So it's not just, you know, we went in a dungeon, killed something, took its stuff, and that had no effect. You know, it should have some effect. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's stunned by my wisdom. <laughs> no, nothing else the effect it should have if you go into a dungeon and come out with a ton of loot is to disrupt the local economy, right? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that is if you're doing a dungeon-style game, anyway. Yeah. Um, so I think we're, we're about at the time we should move on to your topic, uh, uh, Jim. Okay. Um, I picked up Starfinder a while ago, and uh, this month I've done a... I've been doing, like, themed months on my blog, so I did a month of stuff for Starfinder, just finding some cool art, basically, and making up stories or gear or whatever around it um it's an interesting game it's kind of like a, a slightly lighter version of the of the pathfinder rules it's more accessible but that may just be that it hasn't been completely weighed down with supplements yet it's very much fantasy in space for the most part so i never liked Shadowrun for that for that reason you know cyberpunk with elves just doesn't doesn't work for me but you don't have to use any of that and because it's such a familiar rule set a lot of kind of the difficulty of adapting people to a new game and so on kind of kind of goes away and uh, yeah i i think it's a really good product apparently it hasn't got as much traction as they wanted it to hasn't got as many fans but i found quite a bit of positive response to what i've been putting out there and I might do a version of uh, of machinations conversion stuff for Starfinder to kind of bring that attitude across because I like everything about it except the background <laughs> and the settings. Yeah, you know, we were talking about world building, but just kind of advancing a fantasy world into science fiction is kind of interesting, but not really to me. Um, I think Spelljammer and um, there was a an imitation Spelljammer game. Dragon Star, was it? Anyone remember? Yeah, I think that's, that's what it was. Yeah, I think that's a more interesting way of going about it, kind of extrapolating the, the fantasy elements forward and the, the magic and so on, whereas this brings sort of science fiction-y elements in. And it's, it, it, it lacks that plausibility I was talking about. But if you play it as a straight-up sci-fi game, it's pretty good, though I don't think classes and levels work particularly well in modern or sci-fi settings but yeah i enjoy it this it's just missing a few things like decent vehicle design rules there's a couple of um fan supplements of, of vehicle rules i think i'll end up doing my own but yeah it's um it's better than i think it's being given credit for um i haven't looked at the new pathfinder playtest rule set but if that's any indication 
They're taking a kind of, but not quite, fifth edition slant, sort of making things a bit simpler and easier and and quicker to play, but retaining some of the depth that of character creation and specialization that third edition had. So yeah, it's um, it's a bit more experimental. Yeah, you're talking about people playing it safe, pundit. I mean, to some extent it is, but it's it's a matter of degree, I guess. In a, in a market glutted with the same kind of fantasy stuff over and over again, it's it's good to see something even even slightly different. I mean, I don't know what we can talk about exactly. I mean, what what's your feeling about fitting rules to a science fiction setting? Um, do you like to mix magic and and so on with your with your sci-fi? Does that does that work for you? Well, I'm I'm going to start with three three things that have come to mind as you were talking here. First off, on a kind of meta level, I think uh, Paizo is not. It, it, I think they're in a lot of trouble. Right, I, I've been around long enough in the gaming thing to remember um, the decline of White Wolf after D&D got its act together and released third edition. And uh, I'm seeing them making all the same mistakes that White Wolf made. Um, and I think that they're, they're doomed to an ever decreasing market share at this point. But uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of something outside the, the scope of what you were talking about, except that I think that they, they were trying to, they're trying to figure out some way to get another big hit. And mm. I don't think they're ever going to get another big hit as big as Pathfinder was. And Pathfinder 2nd, all it's going to do is cut away a whole bunch of the fans of Pathfinder 1st who are not going to come with them into the new edition. And I think Starfinder had the makings of being a, a, a successful game, but not a successful game at the scale that they would need it to be, right? Mm. Um, second, I think you should totally do a conversion of uh, machinations for... Uh, Starfinder, if, if that's what you're, um, what you're, what you're interested in, if only because you know the all the, you know, the there were SJW entryists in in Paizo before they ever got serious at uh, Wizards of the Coast, and and I think they would just go absolutely hysterical over the fact that that you're doing material for their game. <laughs> they, they are one of the companies that um, applied fiscal pressure. To drive through to uh, to censor my products, so there would be a certain amount of satisfaction in sticking it to the man, I guess. Karma. <laughs> <laughs> so now my third point is is just more um, to give a shout out here. Um, in you talked about uh, Spelljammer, which of course was TSR's big, you know, fantasy flying boats in space thing, but there was another. Uh, similar sort of thing that happened at the same time, which was in um, the world of Mistara. You had the the excellent, excellent uh, kind of, sp not a spin-off setting, but a kind of side setting within Mistara, which was all about the the voyage of the Princess Ark and the, you know, Alphatian flying ships and Haldemar von Hacken and these guys. And, and I, th I thought that that was always way cooler than the kind of goofiness of, uh, of Spelljammer. And that was all done by a guy named Bruce Hurd, who's a very, very good um, RPG writer. You know, not, I don't know if he designed games, but he did. He did all the setting stuff for the Princess Ark stuff. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, he's doing these books, um, the World of Kaladar, which are that he he tried to get 
permission to use um, the princess arc and the uh, the stuff from the material he wrote related to princess arc and the, the the whole story of the you know the voyages of Captain Haldemar and all that from Mistara and wizards wouldn't let him do it. So he he's made his own new setting that is very similar in some ways, like some of the similar elements. But it's it's now actually like a space-based setting. Like there's he's in the main book, the first Kaladar book, which is which I reviewed. It's somewhere on the review section of the RPG site and in my blog. Hey um, guys, I gotta I gotta cut out. Okay. Oh. What are my kids? Need right. oh. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, but hey, good session, good discussion. Okay. Right. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll wrap it up. Take care of your yeah. spawn. So, <laughs> so I was saying that um, the, the world of Kaladar is something you might want to take a look at because he does a, an approach in some ways like that where you've got, um, it's fantasy in space, it's kind of high fantasy in space, and uh, I thought it was, it was quite good, and he, I know he's done other books for it since I haven't looked at the other books besides the, the first Kaladar book, um, but you know, I thought this was a good moment to, to give a recommend for that. Yeah, um, I, did one a, of the, I did have a postcard of the princess arc somewhere on my wall behind my green screen but i can't can't find it i, I, I vaguely remember some sort of fuss when he was trying to get the rights back yeah that's but right and it gets hard know, it to keep track of everything it would have been nice but but i think also what he did with kaladar is he kind of expanded that idea into a full-blown fantasy and space uh setting so uh, if you're if you're looking for stuff like that, that's another alternative to take a look at, um, which which could be pretty interesting. I personally have sometimes you know dabbled in that. I mean, obviously, I use, I do a lot of that when I'm doing kind of Gonzo campaigns. My last sunsetting is is technically a, a mix of sci-fi and fantasy. It's kind of a a world long after a, an apocalypse, and the world itself is actually a, a, a huge Dyson sphere that's in the middle, you know, that, that, that is surrounding the last star of a dead universe that is now traveling through some kind of super science to try to get to a new universe where they could survive. Um, that's kind of the, the bigger story behind it. But uh, in the setting itself, you've got, um, you know, the, the, the surface world, and then you have huge spans of, of skies between the, the 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 surface of the Dyson sphere, the inner surface, and the sun itself, where there are floating rocks and and star bases and you know flying ships and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I like doing that. I usually do it in a kind of Gonzo style, but not the kind of silly style with you know that you ended up with in Spelljammer. I think their mistake is they went they they just got far too silly with you know stuff like the the space hamsters and. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so like they, they, it was that style of humor that was not it wasn't uh as clever as something like monty python and it also you know it, it wasn't really um it wasn't it wasn't all that funny frankly it was just kind of this kind of goofy humor that you would sort of expect from you know bad american writing <laughs> i don't think it's aged well it's, it's the main thing no, not at all. It's just it it get when you think back at it, it just gets cornier every year. <laughs> Those hippo people, wasn't it? The uh... yeah, yeah, the hippo men and uh, 
yeah, and the space hamsters and all kinds of other stuff like that. People love the yeah. space hamsters. Well, they don't. They they just really remember them because of how aw- they love them in the sense of you know how awful it was, right? Yeah. So, what I think when you're doing this, when you're doing um, a space D and D setting, um, it has to have be be treated in some ways with the same kind of um, not you know you don't have to be deadly serious, but it has to have the same kind of approach that you would with a um, a regular setting, right? Like you can't cut yourself off at the knees by you know going with with um with cheap theatrics or with uh or with corny humor mm. yeah they got playable space hamsters <laughs> i turn them into rats and um swap out their they've got this ability to hide stuff in their cheeks which is just kind of silly and annoying so i gave them the ability to gnaw through things instead just swap them in make them a bit more like skaven you know much more interesting i mean in a way the most i mean i'm not a big fan of it but the most successful fantasy in space setting of all time is warhammer 40,000 yeah Yeah. I, i find that the earlier warhammer the the rogue trader period of warhammer 40k was in some ways a lot more interesting than than when it became total and absolute grimdark you know oh uh, definitely i mean it was and it always used to be implied that the warhammer fantasy setting was just a single world somewhere in the imperium and that the emperor on the fantasy world might even be a lost primarch or, or something but i think they've scrapped all that so yeah they told they totally backtracked on that yeah wasn't there a uh a fuss going on recently, another mini scandal. The guy who does the um, kind of retro cloned Woofrup game, Grim and Perilous. I think I think he was he was uh, yeah bashing the old woke drum a bit recently. Oh yes, I think I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, well, he 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 tried to take. Um the the dnd gate hashtag and and trademark it yes that's the same guy yeah <laughs> uh wasn't he objecting to like um who's got the woofrup license now is it cubicle seven or modifius i think it's cubicle seven which of the two i'm pretty sure it's cubicle seven uh from the, just from remembering the the art they've got for it but i think he was kind of objecting that it wasn't moving in a woke direction and um yeah he's probably just trying to shill his own game off the back of that can't really can't really blame him for that really but but you're trying to trademark <laughs> dk that was just dumb yes indeed mm. it's um just to circle around to dnd gate again before we um before we switch switch off and i get some sleep um i mean it's it's ironic really that they try to take over your tag because that was a tactic we used a lot in gamergate was because people had the the tag muted and it, it stops trending we would just on mass move into another tag and and take it over you know that's how we got the attention of the uh, society of professional journalism 
um, how we made Gamergate a topic around some conventions that went on and some technical meetings and so on. So it's ironic that they tried to do that to you, but th there hasn't really been any singular event to kick this off other than you trying to start a hashtag and then responding to it. I mean, there hasn't been a, a big singular controversy, has they, there? They became the event, basically. They, they did this to themselves. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just silly. And I mean, you're saying that we shouldn't gatekeep, which is the message that they're saying that they're putting out there, but they're doing the opposite and trying to shut people down and shut people out for whatever reason that's irrelevant to the to the games themselves. It's how, how do we even bridge this gap? I, I wish I wish some of them would actually bother to talk to me because it might be able to have some productive discussions and figure out what's going on and where the common ground is. But they're just so invested in attacking people that that communication seems impossible. Yeah, un unfortunately, that's for the most part true. But I think that the more outrageous that their responses are, the more that people say, well, hang on, you know, and, and like, this is what, like I said, when, when, when this thing started this week, it started with this flood of people basically trying to bury me and, you know, me and a couple of other people doing some responses, but the more that, that they moved in towards outrage, the more that drew the attraction of a whole bunch of other people. So that, you know, the first two days, it was like, you know, I felt like I was completely surrounded. And then, you know, on the third day, suddenly you had this <laughs> whole slew of people that were fighting back. So yeah. they, you know, they, they were the proof that what I was talking about was correct. You know, I was, I, I'd spent the last month and a half doing videos where I talked about how this notion of the D&D community was being used in order to try to create this um, control scenario where they get to define language, define terms, define the values that the community is supposed to have, and then use this to attack their political enemies. And they proved it all in what they did in response to this tag. So suddenly a bunch of people that would otherwise have said, no, you know, you're, you're wrong. There's no reason for this. We don't need this. We're looking at this and going, oh, well, hang on. He might be right after yeah. all. Clearly there is a problem. Because if there wasn't, people wouldn't be reacting like this. And I think this is going to go on from here. And ultimately, I think what, what's going to happen is that like, one of my goals is to delegitimize this idea of their control over defining what is or is not the, you know, the D&D community, as it were. I'm, I, I want, you know, I've read their book. This is the problem they've always had with me, right? I know exactly what playbook they're using, right? It, it's all about you know, the, these notions from Foucault and from the, the postmodernists and from these other guys that uh, have to do with you, you take control of language, you change the definition of terms, um, you, you define the assumptions of any argument based on the terms you've now created. And so you create this kind of closed system where if anyone tries to argue against you, they're, if they're arguing against you with your own terms, your own definitions of those terms, they're going to lose because they've already accepted your assumptions. But yeah. if you turn around and say, I reject your, your terms and here are other terms, then suddenly they don't get to have that absolute narrative control, right? So yeah. hence I'm saying, 
you know, you've dis defined community in a way that gives you control, I'm going to say, no, there's no such thing as a D&D &D community as you're defining it. There's yeah. a D&D hobby, and that D&D hobby doesn't need moral, you know, guard dogs that are determining what our politics are, you know, because yeah. a hobby is defined just by one thing. Do you play the game or not? And if you play the game, you're in, and if you don't, <laughs> you've got no business telling us what to do. Yeah, I mean, people are always dismissive of semantics as though it's it's not important, but it's you, you can't have a meaningful discussion if you don't agree on what terms mean. I'm going to call you on something, though, just to be difficult and contrary. There was a time when you used to go on a lot about, um, what did you call them, lawn crappers and, yeah. and keeping them out of the hobby. So how do you marry those, those two things together? Uh, that's... Uh... That's a good question. Now, see, I do think that you do have some people who are directly harmful in different ways in, in, um, in terms of, you know, the, the impression that people have over the hobby. And, you know, one of the ways that they can be harmful is if in our quest for tolerance, we end up putting up with people that have really, you know, horrible personal habits or people who, you know, like harassment of women, let's say, right? There is mm. real harassment of women. Harassment of women isn't telling a feminist that she sucks. You know, harassment of women is when you have these guys that are saying there shouldn't be any girls in D&D, right? Or yeah. if you have a guy at a gaming table that won't stop hitting on the first nerd girl that comes close to him, you know, and, and behaves in deeply inappropriate ways. We have to behave as in, in a proper way in the context of society. Right. So there, there are legitimate things that we can call out in terms of, you know, that sort of bad behavior. But it's also an equally lawn crapping behavior to come into a group and demand that that group uh, fulfill your personal ideological ideas and then, uh, you know, uh, try to drive out someone who disagrees with you as opposed to. Uh, things that have to do with actions that people are doing, right? I mean, I would be the first to say that if if, if there's someone who is being um, grotesquely inappropriate towards women or towards you know any other person at the table, right? If they're if they're if they're using racial slurs against someone in the gaming table, um, there's a legitimate reason to say no. Well, you know, get out of the table. <laughs> but if they're if what they're doing is coming into the table and demanding that they get to play a special kind of character because of their identity or something like that, then, then this is also a kind of behavior that's inappropriate in the context of what we do in the hobby. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good answer. Um, yeah, so it's stuff that actually affects the game and the people playing it um, kind of unbidden versus people taking issue with stuff that doesn't affect the game like someone's politics or or whatever else and you you have to live up to that i mean i have to live up to that in the sense that i'm saying dnd is for everyone right so dnd has to be for everyone you can't you know that that means that if, if you're one of these people that that thinks that you know girls shouldn't play dnd or something like that <laughs> then you know you don't speak for me and i'm gonna call you out on that yeah, I have you like a third of my my gaming group right now. It's varied from time to time, but it's never been less than a quarter um, are are women, 
and and there's always been women in the hobby and people of color and LGBT people, you know, and, and if they're yeah. coming to my people to game, the whole thing should be, if you're coming to play the game and you know how to behave yourself as a, as a basically decent human being, right. If you're, if you're not, you know, crapping your pants on the table or if you're not uh, <laughs> you know, doing something that, that, that is um, disruptive, whether that disruption is due to, you know, terrible personal habits or whether it's, due to whatever your personal ideology is, regardless of whether it's left, right, or just nuts, um, then, you know, if, if you're doing those things, it's you have to call people out if, if it is that they're trying to exclude people. But one of the groups that is most trying to dominate, define, and exclude people are the SJWs themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good good way to define the difference. And uh on that positive note, we should probably wrap up. Yeah, that sounds good to me. So <laughs> as usual, anybody who's uh, who's watching, if you liked this and uh, you want us to do um, more episodes, then please support us on Patreon. Our, uh, our Patreon is entirely based on if we get to a certain point, then Avenger's wife will allow him to do more episodes. <laughs> so uh, yeah. We really need that to, to be able to convince her. So get us to that level and then you'll get more, more shows if you're enjoying this. Um, besides that, check out our individual channels. Again, if you want to get the full story of the, you know, about what was going on this last week with the D&D gate tag and what I really stand for and don't, don't listen to, to bullshit that people are telling you on social media. Watch my latest video and you know, you'll see what I'm saying. Yeah, much the same. Uh, subscribe to me, Postmortem Video, on YouTube. My blog, where you can find everything, is postmortemstudios.wordpress.com. If you want to help this channel grow, just like, subscribe, but most importantly, share, because the discovery algorithms on YouTube are just broken. So the best thing you can do to help us out is to share the content with other people and encourage them to subscribe. Share it everywhere. <laughs> though we do have power shill pundit <laughs> who never misses an opportunity to self-promote <laughs> yeah well people say that that's that that's my reason for doing things it's not my reason for doing things but i am a shameless self-promoter but the difference between me and say you know hasbro slash wizards is that i admit that that's one of the things i'm you know the reason i'm doing it right and that's one of the crazy things about all this is that you've got this whole mass of people that have seriously bought this you know multi-billion dollar corporation um what what for them is basically a marketing scheme <laughs> and i'm, I'm far too promotion you know and i'm far too british and shy to self-promote so i rely on other people to do it for me <laughs> all right we'll see you next time take care everyone bye bye <laughs>